hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, we return with a Journal Club episode. We cover three relevant articles to the vitreoretinal life and practice. I'm joined by three of my colleagues for this episode, Drs. Matthew Cunningham, Priya Vicaria, and Lisa Olmos-Deku with Dr. Gita Lalwani stopping by afterward for further commentary on the articles. As always, you can find relevant financial disclosures in the episode description. You can also claim CME credit by clicking on the link in the episode description. That will take you to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website where you can claim those credits. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now back with a journal club. I am joined by three of my colleagues uh, in the field of retina. We're going to go in alphabetical order, uh, which means that we're going to start east, go west, and come all the way back east. So first in alphabetical order, Dr. Uh, Matthew Cunningham, who's a retina specialist in the Orlando area. Matt, th- thanks for uh, making the time and welcome back. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Uh, we have Dr. Lisa Olmos-Deku. Uh, Dr. Olmos-Deku, Lisa is a retina attending and associate professor at University of Washington in Seattle, and she's joining us today. Thanks again, Lisa. Great to be back on. And we're going to go all the way whiplash you back to Florida. We got uh, Dr. Priya Vicaria, uh, who is in uh, Tampa, Florida, um, and in a retina specialist there. Priya, welcome back. Good to be back, Jay. So we got three articles, um, all with sort of a related topic that we're going to spend some time um, breaking down. So um, these articles were all published in, in various kind of educational journals. We're going to start with this um, journal article um, from the United States. It was published in the Journal of Surgical Education. Hendrik Wang was the first author, Divya Srikumaran from Wilmer, the senior author. Um, it's called Parental Leave Policy for Ophthalmology Residents. This is a result of a nationwide cross-sectional study of program directors. So I'm just going to quickly summarize what they did. Um, they essentially looked at um, all U.S. program directors, and this was in the 2017-2018 academic year. So it's pre-COVID, but a few years ago, not too old. Um, they got at 68% of these attendings to respond, and that's pretty good. Having done some survey-based studies, usually you're in the 10 or 15% range, so they got a pretty good cohort to respond. And the questions were essentially, do what does their program have in terms of maternal leave and partner leave policies? What do people typically take during training? What does that look like? And so some of the interesting takeaways, right? So um, the maternity leave, right? They were defined as leave for a childbearing parent, partner leave versus any non-childbearing uh, parents. Um, almost all the programs and maternity leave policies on 89%, about three quarters have partner leave policies, which is also encouraging 72%. It was interesting uh, that there was a correlation between program size and number of female residents with children, but no correlation between program size and number of male residents with children. Of course, the larger your program, the more likely you are to have any residents of any type. Um, so the other interesting things to take away from their results was how long do people take leave, right? So people take four to six weeks as a resident. Um, they're allowed to take up to over eight weeks, um, partner leave. People usually take one day to two weeks, but most people again are allowed more than that two to four weeks. Um, and then you just look in terms of what happens, right? So if someone's on parental leave, what do programs require? Do residents have to do coverage? Do they have to pay that back? How does that work? Um, so they, most programs do have other residents covering you. So if you're pulled out, they'll have another resident cover, which again, which is nice, which kind of alleviates some of the burden. Um, but again, if you look towards um, you know, how many people have had to extend training it's um, not small, right? So they, a lot of them talked about either they have to make up what they missed or extend their training in order to do that. Um, and they do say that it impacts surgical skills. They say it impacts volume, it impacts their scholarly activities, um, which again is something we can talk about in a second. And then finally, you know, they talked about um, the difficulties associated with it, right? So they said there really wasn't much local support that there's impact on their other residents, it's impact on their programs, there's impact, and there's not really national policy. It's kind of like a program has to kind of figure it out in the context of their hospital. 
Um, and one program director wrote, and I'll quote, and it's anonymous, new parenthood particularly negative impacts residents and fellows because the demands of their job do not leave much room for anything else. Um, and so this was interesting. Only five of the directors said that it did not negatively affect training out of the 68% who responded. So um, Lisa, I'm gonna let you kick us off. So it, this is an interesting concept, the idea of parental leave during training. We've all known, um, none of us, I think, Matt, maybe you can comment, but none of the rest of us have had children during training. Um, training alone is already very stressful. There's a lot to do. Most programs, residents are very codependent. Um, but we have this delayed gratification in medicine, right? And people go to undergrad and they go to medical school and they're all kind of hitting this point in their life where this is when people would have children. So it's not something you can simply say, hey, you just don't have kids during training because it's a real phenomenon. So what are your kind of reactions to this paper and thoughts on parental leave as it applies to ophthalmology training? Well, um, as you alluded to, I, um, I'm a mother. I have two children. Both of my children were born after I had finished my training and I was a faculty member um, at the time at USC Doheny. Um, and I, uh, as, as generally occurs when you experience parenthood for the first time, you, you, you know from seeing others go become parents how it is, uh, what, uh, what an incredible life change it is. And um, I felt as a faculty member relatively protected from a lot of um, the challenges that might have occurred if I had a less flexible schedule or less control over my schedule as um, many of those in training would. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think um, having policies in place is so important to protect our trainees, you know, our retina fellows and our residents. Um, I think that um, you know, in order to minimize the negative impact on, for example, scholarly activities and surgical activities, you need there needs to be more focus on things that can be done to minimize that. So for example, planning ahead of time, maybe doing a few more ORs ahead of time. Um, but you know, I, I think that from a residency standpoint, there are rules from the ACGME as to how much training or how many months one must be in training in order to satisfy the requirements for graduation. But I do think it's important you know, that trainees come together and faculty to come together to, to support their trainees um, during times of parental leave um, and realize that it's not forever. And ultimately, uh, you know, the ultimate goal, this too shall pass, you know, parenthood brings a lot of joy and completion to someone. And ultimately I could never view it as, you know, a negative factor. So if policies are in place and people are, um, supportive of one another, um, I think it ultimately will help. Matt, any, any comments? And, and I'm yeah. curious, and we'll get thoughts on the whole group. What do we make of the fact that people seem to be taking less than the, the, the mandatory time, you know, or the, the maximum allowed time? Because it seems both for parental leave and partner leave, people are actually shorting their leave. Um, is that surprising? Is that something? I mean, what do you make of that? So yeah, so um, before I answer that, just to give a little bit of context, so my um, my wife is a pediatric hospitalist, and um, we have two children, and we had my first daughter when I was a first year fellow. Um, so to answer that question, um, I'm actually not surprised. Um, I'm sure where I did my fellowship at, at Iowa that there were uh, policies for. Um, for parental or maternity leave and partner leave. Um, I will tell you though, I took one day off, you know, and that was one day off despite having um, no family in the area, despite, you know, my wife having to have a C-section. Um, and it was mainly because, you know, it wasn't because of fear, but it was just because uh, I just felt guilt. And, I think that's where a lot of this starts. I think a lot of this stems from um, maybe the female resident feeling guilty, leaving her uh, co-residents, you know, to take more call or um, guilt from not being in the operating room and getting, you know, surgical skills that, that she may need. Um, for the partner, it's, you know, it's also, you know, it, it's the same, you know, you might be allowed to take up to eight weeks or six weeks off, but I know of uh, no one who's, who's actually used all of that time. 
Um, but I, I truly believe this is a, a wellness issue. And I, I truly believe it is time to, to look at, you know, these topics. I, the, the one thing I will, and I, I don't know, Jay, if you're going to bring this up later, but I was actually shocked to see that the ABO recommends 36 months of training in ophthalmology, right? But there's only, it's at the, the program director to say whether training needs to be extended. So in this article where it said 72%, you know, needed to be extended, truth to be told, all you need, you know, you could take up to six months off per year. And if you're, if your program director thinks you're competent and thinks you, you know, maintained, you know, uh, the knowledge that you need, theoretically speaking, you would be acceptable for a board certification. And can I jump in just for a second um, to point out uh, as far as a, res, a retina fellowship goes, you know, we are, a lot of our fellowships are governed by the AUPO FCC. And if you look at the requirements there, uh, the requirements are for a 24-month fellowship or two-year fellowship, but only 18 of those months must be clinical. So technically there, it goes up to six months as well, and it is program director um, uh, up to their discretion. Yeah, I, I think that, um, and, and Priya, I'll get your, your thoughts on the extension in a second. You know, I think the interesting things you said there, Matt, was the idea of guilt. And they talk about this idea that male residents are actually more likely to have children during training than female residents. And how much of that is, uh, and they talk about, there's been a lot of literature about female residents pushing up. How much is the guilt even extending to your decisions about children, right? And the stressors of everything that goes along with it. Um, and the idea of guilt, you know, a lot of the program directors spent a lot of time talking about, well, we want to be fair to the other residents. We want it to be consistent for the other residents. And on the surface, you know, I, I, and I'm an APD here, I, I get it. Like, you don't want other residents to feel like, hey, they're overworked or they're stretched thin. But for me, like, first of all, life is not fair. And, and we, you know, we're all at a stage, you know, Lisa and I are in academic institutions, Matt and Priya, you guys are at private practices. This is just part of life is covering each other, right? Like, like why are we setting the expectation and training that, well, it's unfair if a resident takes time to put their child that was just born to the other residents? It's really not unfair. I mean, like, like is anything ever completely even? No. Is it fair, I guess, that I'm a resident who had no children and two of my classmates had children and they took time? No, but that's not, it's not like they're taking time to go on a pleasure cruise. I mean, you, you all have had kids. It's not, it's not, it's, I, some people would argue it's a lot harder to have to raise a child, much harder to raise a child than to be um, a resident in some ways, depending on how you view it. So I think it's just interesting because it sets up the cultural talk. We'll talk about a little bit about like, how do you view this in the context of the real world? Like when you go into practice or you go into an institution, um, you talked about how it was, you felt much more protected as an attending. Um, be curious to get comments from the private practice side as well, but Priya, Priya thoughts on anything anyone said or anything that I just said? Yeah, Jay, I, mean, I think you bring up all really great points. Um, you know, having a child at any point in time, whether you're in residency or, or in practice is hard. Um, I can't even imagine sometimes how, how residents are able to do it. I was lucky that I had my, my child in, when I was in attending and in private practice and had the ability to change my schedule and had the ability to um, you know, take off as much time as I wanted, but sometimes, um, you know, I think it's really hard, uh, residents sometimes only take four weeks off and, um, you know, one, one of the things I really hope to do is, is to normalize that, you know, women should be able to take, um, you know, however much time off that they need for maternity leave, because I find that, uh, there is this conception um, that four weeks is enough or, or six weeks is enough, but, but everybody's different. Everybody has a different uh, delivery and a different uh, recovery period. Um, you know, regardless, I think that all of th this article kind of highlights that, uh, you know, as physicians and, and, and our residents are, are doing what they need to do to, to make it through. Um, but I, I do agree that um, it, is, it is a hard process uh, to have a kid and as much support as we can give our residents is important. Yeah. And, and let's talk a little bit about like that, that practice thing, right? Because what I've heard, we are all sort of incentivized differently, academics or prior practices. There's no sort of one uniform system, but it's getting less and less common for people to be purely salaried, right? 
Um, maybe in some of the newer kind of venture capital, private equity models, there's more of a salaried system, but no matter what system you are, you are measured based on productivity to an extent, right? So these productivity models, from what I've seen, don't generally adjust for maternity or parental leave, right? So like you can say, oh, you have all the time in the world, but you know, if you are trying to make a certain salary or maintain a patient base, depending on how your, your group is structured, um, if you're more on the salaried spectrum, then you could breed probably unwarranted resentment among people who feel like they're covering you but not being paid more. You can also have the opposite problem in theory, right? If you're in a system that's more of the quote unquote, eat what you kill model, then theoretically you could be losing revenue and patients and being penalized financially for taking time. Um, and I don't know the right answers to solve that, Matt. Like I'm curious, you, know, you were in a very large group that has had to deal with this issue. I'm sure you've thought about different ways to approach this. Like in your mind, like what's the ideal way to sort of set it up? Obviously it works best if everyone's sort of on the same page and everyone's sort of like a team player, which is what ultimately you want is everyone just kind of understand this is part of life and part of being a doctor and working with other people. But like you also have to tangibly put protections in so people don't get hurt because what's happening in residency, they're coming back early, maybe because they feel guilty or they're worried about cases. In the real world, people are coming back early because sometimes it's a financial issue or again, just an interpersonal thing. Yeah. So I, I'll tell you my, you know, so we have 10 partners. Um, we just recently had one of the partners who was, uh, who, who had a baby and was out on leave. And, you know, I will tell you, um, there was a lot of thought that was given on her part prior to taking that leave. So that included, you know, all of the urgent cases, you know, thinking ahead, right? When you're signing up somebody for surgery, not saying, okay, we'll get this done in a month or, or six weeks, um, keeping us all in the loop, right? So as her partners, we said, look, you know, we want you not to feel stressed. So we each go to about five satellites and the furthest satellite might be an hour to an hour and a half drive, right? So closer to the time of, of delivery, we said, okay, let's have you stopped driving out this far? We'll just keep you local um, just in case, right? That's another part of, of wellness and another part of support. Um, and lastly, her telling her patients, look, I'm going to be out for two to three months. And, you know, so you're going to be well taken care of by my partners. And we all knew, you know, we're going to step up for these, you know, for these next few months and, you know, see an extra 10 patients a day or, you know, cover an extra call night or a call week. Um, so from a, from a practice, um, uh, from a, 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 the logistics of, of the practice, it wasn't all that difficult. It wasn't all that tough for us. Um, from a compensation standpoint, you're, you're absolutely right, Jay. I, the, the issue is anybody who's using high dollar drugs knows that, you know, you get hit a couple months later or, however your reimbursement model may be, you know, so there, there are certainly months where your revenue will go down, especially if you're, you know, eat what you kill type uh, productivity model. Um, our practice, we, we do not have, you know, something specifically set in place um, for maternity leave. But um, if, if that partner really crushes it leading up to it, you know, it actually evens out. So, that's what ended up happening in our case. Lisa, what, what are your thoughts about real world? Again, academics is a little more insulated in some ways, though not always, depending on your model. Um, but I'm sure you've interacted with people, not just in academics, but throughout the spectrum and you know, seeing what they've experienced. Yeah, absolutely. And not every academic program is the same. When I actually had my children, I had, was a new faculty member. So I was actually on um, a, sal a period of salary guarantee. And I managed to have both my children while on salary guarantee. So I was not faced with those financial pressures. Um, I was personally productive, if not as financially productive. But right now, um, very recently, we actually had two of our um, faculty members both out on maternity leave that overlapped. And um, as a service, uh, we came together. Um, and just like Matt, you know, to support those individuals um, and making sure that the call requirements were not um, too steep leading up to delivery too, because that's certainly a concern. I myself had a preeclampsia leading up to my second delivery, um, which I'm pretty sure I, I actually contributed to that by my own um, 
working really hard and trying to get everything done before my maternity leave, which I think I see a lot in a lot of mothers just, you know, placing a lot of stress on their bodies, trying mm-hmm. to get everything tucked away and perfect before leave. Um, so I wanted to make sure that, you know, we all wanted to make sure that um, our faculty members going in paternity leave didn't feel those kind of pressures. And um, yeah, we all see a few more patients, but this too shall pass. Um, it's a finite period. And um, I'm really proud of the, the cute babies that we have as part of our retina service now. And, and I want to tie it into this other article. So we have this article from Canada, Attitudes Toward Parental Leave and Breastfeeding During Ophthalmology Residency. So not just leave, but now when you transition back, it's not like your job as a mother is done. There's a lot of things at home, but also breastfeeding is a... Is a... So this article essentially was another survey-based study um, in um, looking at ACGME. And then the idea was, again looking at kind of the perceptions of ophthalmology residents versus program directors. So a little different than the other study. Um, so the interesting thing that was, was there, I thought, and there's, there's a bunch of things, almost 60%, again, small numbers, only 26 residents out of the ones who responded, but 60% said they got some sort of negative feedback prior to leaving. Majorities felt that their co-residents were supportive, but it was like a slight majority, right? It was only like 53 and 48%. So it was like 50-50 but they did feel like they were negatively affecting their co-residents. So it goes back to the discussion of guilt, right? Um, you know, again, there were written parental leave policies in place at many of these programs. Um, they did talk about negative impacts on surgical training in their female residents. Um, half of the programs had an institutional breastfeeding policy. Everyone said they were supportive, but not everyone had something written out. So Priya, this goes back again to this discussion of how do you better support people, right? Um, because it's not like overwhelming, like 90% of people are like, oh, I got a lot of support from my program director or my co-residents. It seems like it's a coin flip. And, and that's a little unfortunate. You know, it sounds like everyone in this, this call um, has had really supportive people around them and has a supportive team. But I think that we're the tip of an iceberg and there's a lot of people who aren't in the supportive environments, whether that's in training or in practice or at an academic institution. So like, I guess your reactions to this paper and then just kind of tying in now to the idea of breastfeeding, breast pump, like pumping, like how do we kind of adapt a, a world that frankly, the retina world was frankly extremely male dominated until 20 years ago. And now 25% recent numbers of retina fellows are women. It's going to continue to climb. We have more two uh, position families. Well, like, you know, Matt is in one where you have two people who work and the father has to take in those or whoever that person is with a non-childbearing parent has to take more responsibilities, right? How do we kind of change culture to allow people in medicine? Because Lisa was just talking about it. She, you know, you got, I, I was listening to you and you said it so casually. You're like, oh, I got preeclampsia because I was working too hard. I'm like, oh my goodness. Like we all do this to ourselves and we're okay talking about it. But if we had a patient come in and tell us this, we'd be like, oh, don't work so hard. Just like, what are you doing? You need to take care of yourself. So I'm just curious what, you, what your reactions are. Um, so I thought this, this was, you know, a good, a good paper. Um, and I think they kind of summarized it well, like to, to support a breastfeeding mom, you just need to give a couple of things. One is, you know, surprisingly just a place for her to pump. I think they commented like, a, I forgot the percentage, but there were a high percentage where they didn't have a dedicated location for, for pumping. And I think that's something that's super easy. And, um, you know, it, it is just a small space, a clean, small, private space that has a lock on the door. I think that that's really all that someone needs. And then time. Um, so pumping is variable. Everybody takes a different amount of time to pump and everybody needs to pump a different number of times per day. And that can be really hard because um, it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a thing that is purely a supply demand kind of kind of thing. And so let's say, you know, I've heard from a lot of residents who, uh, let's say they have a day of cataracts and, uh, they have, maybe they can pump at lunch. If they have a lunch, you know, oftentimes you don't have lunch when you're in the OR, just kind of eat the cases and, you know, it only takes, let's say 15 minutes to pump, but then to set everything up, it's a 30 minute process. And there are residents who say, I just don't pump because I didn't want to miss cases. Um, so I think the thing that you can do is just support lactating moms and just give them time to pump. Um, you know, and, and, and let them know they're supported from a location and time and maybe wait five minutes before you start your next case to just give them that time to, to provide food for their child. I think that that's kind of what this paper, um, highlighted to me. 
So Priya, I, I, I actually got that from it as well. But the thing that actually stood out for me was, um, I forgot, it was a figure that said where the means were used for parental leave and greater than 20% of the, uh, the surveyors said it was used from uh, vacation, right? And I, I know there's a recent ABMS uh, rule that came out that said, you know, a resident's allowed six weeks off that does not count towards vacation if it's maternity or paternity leave. Um, however, however, individual program incorporates that is extremely uh, variable and, and could be different. So I will tell you, my wife is the APD for the residency, the PEDS residency here, and her and the program director, they have actually created a maternity leave elective. So it's four week block that basically the residents can use to, you know, during like right after birth to, you know, as a home elective where they read journals and, you know, have to report, you know, whatever, you know, the, the elective uh, states, but it prevents them from having to use vacation. And that's just one way that they get around, you know, having to have their residents use vacation time. Again, this also goes back to, you know, having residents come back after four weeks, Priya, like you were saying, it makes you sick. You know, maybe it's because there's also a financial component to it as well. Um, I don't know if this is something that could be incorporated into ophthalmology residency programs um, where we could have almost a, um, a, a, you know, maternity type or, or a parenting type elective. Um, but it, it's something to you know discuss or something to think about. Um, also, Lisa, hitting on you know how casual you were about the uh, preeclampsia uh, thing. We we actually um, after my second daughter was born, my wife actually had postpartum preeclampsia, um, which is not something you uh, you hear about that often. But we had to rely on in laws and. Um, somebody constantly being in the house, monitoring blood pressures and things like that and helping out. So these things, even though it didn't directly affect me um, or my body, it was something that, you know, it did affect my day to day. So um, these are these are issues that I, I didn't frankly discuss with with many people because, you know, you just go about your your, your day to day. But these are important things to uh, have a discussion about. Yeah. And to, to the topic of breastfeeding, you know, um, I'm actually, my mother, um, is a retired ophthalmologist. She was a retina specialist actually. And I think back in the day in the seventies, when I was born, breastfeeding wasn't considered by the medical community to be really all that, that important, um, for the, for child nourishment or child health. Um, I was not breastfed, um, never at all. I was a formula baby. Um, and when I, you know, came my turn to have kids, um, and there was a lot of literature and a lot of support for breastfeeding. I realized, you know, um, that I intended to do it because it meant potentially better health for my, my child. And, um, you know, I did a lot of research and, um, you know, I, I absolutely agree that, that having the accoutrements helps. Like, for example, I had an office because I was a faculty member and I had a really smart, actually my secretary, he said, get a mini fridge and just put it in your office, having a refrigeration system, because you know, those little ice blocks can melt over time and set a timer on your watch. And just no matter what you're doing, because it is supply and demand, if you do skip it or push it off, um, then your supply will go down. And so it is important to plan ahead. Um, it's hard to schedule patients and especially in the OR, you know, what are you going to do? But, um, you know, I, I think that, um, more and more, um, we are seeing, and, and I know in our residency program, um, having, uh, when, when one of our female residents has to pump, we have a sign that goes up on the door of the residence room. And then I know we have a lot of faculty members who say, Hey, I'm not in my office. You know, I'm seeing patients. You can use my office. So that's wonderful to see, um, actually a growing culture of openness and inclusivity towards, um, towards breastfeeding. Um, I, I just also want to say, I know that we're doing a lot of support for um, moms and breastfeeding, but I think this also bleeds over to our other 
colleagues who have other surgeries. You know, there's uh, one of my uh, close colleagues who had a, a large abdominal surgery and came back to work after three weeks. Um, I think all of these are, are the same kind of topics of wellness that we should we should promote to all um, all physicians in in retina. Um, yeah, I mean that that's kind of like we we, have, we all have these patients, right? I'm like thinking of retinal detachment patients. You kind of read them when you first meet them. And you can get a sense of what you need to tell them in terms of activity restrictions based on their personality. And there's just the people you know based on what their significant other is saying or based on them that they are just going to push the envelope and they're going to be doing things they should not be doing. Uh, and they are in a way their own worst enemy. And I think that unfortunately, as physicians, as a community, 95% of us fall into that category where I think as colleagues, you're right, Priya, I think we need to be the people to say, no, you're not actually coming back. You know. We, it's not that we don't want you back. It's not that we don't think that you're valuable, but you need to take care of your health. Um, and I was going to say, you know, Priya, you talked about this idea of dedicated room. There's this um, paper, Breast Milk Pumping Experiences of Physician Mothers, Quantitative and Qualitative Findings from a Nationwide Survey Study by Jane et al. This was just all physicians. And again, it's another survey. These are all surveys, right? Because you can't really get quantitative data for a lot of these things. But it was just looking at what are kind of the biggest issues, right, for people who are trying to breastfeed as physicians. And it goes back to what you're talking about. It's about not having a place to go. It's about negative perceptions. It's about really just feeling pressured financially that their productivity is going to go down because they're seeing less patients or because they're not able to like keep up with their RVUs. Um, and Lisa, I think it's really good that you guys have ability for residents to use the residence room and things like that. But I think we all imagine an ideal world. And it's really hard because all of our clinic spaces, whether you're private or academic, Space is always at a premium, right? It's not like you have extra rooms usually sitting around, but maybe this is a big enough priority. There should be a, a dedicated area in every clinical space. Like, I don't know, it, it's, it's obviously it's an ideal and it's hard when you're designing a clinic from scratch. Most of us aren't working in buildings or offices we design from scratch. You're kind of working with the space that was there and figuring out the most efficient way to use it. So I don't want to be that person saying you should do this. And people are like, well, I don't really have the space for it, but I'm just saying that it, you need to think about it and think about how that's going to function and how the, the day is going to flow. And Priya, you're right. I think it goes back to culture and, and we can kind of wrap up in the next few minutes. It's like, how can we create a culture where people feel comfortable talking to their colleagues about these things? How do we create a culture where people feel comfortable taking time? And like Matt said, not rushing back to work, not taking less than they should be allotted. How much of that is internal pressure? How much of that is external pressure? How much of that is financial pressure? And like, like how do we sort of protect people from themselves, from productivity guidelines? I mean, these are the things that are going to happen because you're already in a vulnerable state when you have a kid, you're not sleeping much, you're making poor life decisions left and right, you're sleeping. I mean, like, so like you have to do as a community, we have to maybe create some guidelines. We really don't have that. Retina is kind of wild, wild west. I think every practice kind of does it differently. And a lot of practices have had to figure it out on the fly because frankly, a lot of practices had six, seven, eight, nine men before they hired a woman just based on the demographics of the field. And then they said to sort of figure it out because the truth was many of those men were the only breadwinner in their family and didn't take parental leave when they had kids. And that's not an apples to apples comparison when you compare to both women coming to practice or the men who are coming in who have you know a working spouse and you know have more sort of obligations at home um, than what was expected 20 or 30 years ago. I don't know. That was my little soliloquy. Matt, I don't know if you have any thoughts. No, Jay, I'll tell you, um, right before I started fellowship, we found out we were pregnant with our daughter and my wife was terrified. She was terrified because she knew the practice that she was joining, they really needed help. So she was afraid to go in there and say, oh, by the way, um, I'm pregnant because it might make her look lazy in a job that she just started that she's going to have to then take off, you know, a few months as soon as, you know, the baby's born. Um, so she hid her pregnancy for months, which is absurd. It's totally absurd. And I, I don't know, you know, I think there has to be a level of um, comfort with the practice, you know, the, the practice that a female des desires to join or ha has joined, I think there needs to be um, that conversation. You know, I, I don't think this should be something that, that is shied away from. I think this is something that we actually, um, that we actually encourage this discussion um, because otherwise 
you're you're almost waiting on 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 this uncomfortable discussion um and like lisa said you know the the earlier people know the more you know the, the more accommodations could be made and both in the clinic and for supporting her during her pregnancy i uh, i remember when i was first pregnant um i was really nervous to tell my chairman and my my colleagues so nervous it was unnecessary that was all you know self-imposed um again just the way i imposed uh, high standards on myself for you know for work um and you know once i told them i felt so relieved because i got a, a really good response and you know everyone was supportive but d- there was just a lot of trepidation leading up to that um so you know ideally new parents wouldn't, wouldn't have to go through that stress, um, and, and worrying about what others think of them. Priya, any final thoughts before you wrap? No, I think just in general, um, I think retina is getting much, much better at being more supportive. Um, I mean, I think, you know, all of us as attendings had a, a very supportive, uh, practice in group. And I think that, um, I think if we just talk about this more and that, um, we just need to support our other female and male colleagues. And, and again, I don't think it's just with maternity and paternity leave, but also with any health issue, we need to kind of be mindful that that burnout is real. Um, and we need to support us because, because all of us know our jobs are, are busy. We're seeing 50, 60 patients a day. It's like a marathon and you can't get through it unless you have your health. Um, and so I think we just need to support each other and, and just talk about it more and, and, and make people understand that uh, time away for your health is not a vacation. It's, uh, or, or time away for your child is not a vacation. It's, um, it's time that you need so that you can come back to work hundred percent. Well said. And I, I want to thank you all for talking about this topic. Uh, it's a topic that we don't talk enough enough about enough in medicine in in our fields in particular. So I appreciate you doing this journal club with me. Um, Matt Cunningham, Lisa Olmos-Daku, and Priya Vicaria. Thanks so much and uh, have a great night. Thanks, Jay. Thanks for talking about this important topic. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Jay. Fresh off the heels of that kind of deep discussion of this issue of maternity leave and breastfeeding with our journal club articles. One of my colleagues joining us, uh, Dr. Gita Lalawani. Uh, Dr. Lalawani um, has held many roles. Um, I know her as the incoming president of the Buckle Society, um, a very good friend. Um, Dr. Lalawani also has her uh, own retina practice she started, which is Rocky Mountain Retina Associates uh, based in Boulder. And uh, she's joining me now to talk a little bit more about practical advice for you know, younger attendings, trainees who are kind of hitting that point in their life where they may be thinking about having kids, but they're also balancing job options. First of all, Gita, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jay. I appreciate it. So let, let me ask your, your advice and perspective. And I'm, I'm very curious, um, you know, I, we just had a couple of the different Reddit specials on. They all kind of gave their perspective. You know, Lisa talked about how she had kids post-training. Matt talked about how he and his wife had their kids during training. Priya talked about how she their child after training. I, I don't have children yet. So I kind of just was the observer in the room, just listening to them talk about these issues. Um, give first the listeners a little bit of background about where you were when you had your children in terms of your, your educational route. And then maybe we can sort of dive into. So if you had to kind of tell somebody, let's say it was one of your mentees, or if you imagine one of your daughters was a 30 or 31 year old retinal surgeon, finishing fellowship, kind of looking at options, but also thinking of starting a family, what are kind of the lessons you learned and, and advice you would impart? Sure. So first of all, I'm probably, well, I am the oldest of these groups. So I've been through um, pregnancy with my twins, which were born in residency before a lot of these articles that we discussed before a lot of those uh, guidelines were actually even thought about, let alone put in place. So I had my twins when I was a second year resident at Case Western um, and went through a lot of what... um, other people have talked about, about having kids in residency, having to preload your call before you went on maternity leave. Very similar to the articles, I had to basically take all of my vacation at one time for in three years. So I took exactly six weeks off to the day, um, which is my almost my cumulative vacation for my three years of residency, and then went back to residency full time after that. Um, obviously having one child, let alone two is challenging and 
dealt with some of the some of the things that people have mentioned in terms of support versus non-supportive co-residents. But by and large, I would say that the program was supportive. My some of my co-residents were extremely supportive, um, and to that I'm deeply um, indebted. It allowed me to have as much of my baby's time as I possibly could. So. Uh, still not an easy situation, but I think we made the most of it. Interesting at that time, because there were no guidelines, it was all from the hip. And so I'm happy to see that not, while not all programs have guidelines, um, more and more are developing guidelines. Therefore, it's not, um, it's not individual. It's not at the will of a program director. You know, there's something that you can sort of set as a standard of your expectation. You know, do I think it probably should be better and better? Yes, but I'm grateful for how it has changed. And, you know, my twins uh, just turned 18 or off to college in 18 years. <laughs> it's taken a little bit of time, but we got there. So I'm happy about that. Um, my third child was born after, and well, was born during uh, my time in private practice. I was in academics for several years, for four years after I finished up my fellowship and then joined a private practice. Um, and that was not the ideal experience, unfortunately. Um, I had a baby and uh, literally, I, I worked up until a Friday and I delivered by C-section on a Monday, again, trying to minimize my impact on call schedules. Again, I preloaded my call schedule to try and help as much as I could. Um, unfortunately, uh, they decided to let me go two weeks after my child was born. So... That is one of the reasons why I think I would like to be a little bit more vocal so people can know what I think probably is one of worst case scenarios and how to look for red flags and try to find the best fit possible for them, for young women as they head into their careers. Well, first of all, yeah, we were talking about before this, I'm super sorry that happened to you. And that, that is, that, I mean, that's the sort of thing, right? We just had this long discussion about guilt and how the person who feels the guiltiest when they take leave is the person taking leave, Correct. right? I mean, all the studies we saw of residents is they always take less leave than they're allotted. And part of that is maybe the culture of medicine, right? We are in a, in a culture of medicine where we save other people's health at the, at the expense of our <laughs> sure. own. And we, we don't prioritize ourselves. And that, all, that, that can be taken to a fault, right? Obviously, we need to have some sort of benevolent nature being a doctor. But like, at some point, you do your family and your friends and yourself a disservice if you don't take care of yourself first. And, and so that was interesting to see. And like, but part of it, probably the fear is this practical fear, like you just talked about, like, that's the worst case scenario. If you're, if you're a woman, or if you're a man who wants to take time is you don't want to be perceived within the medical community or specifically within the group of doctors that you work sure. with as quote unquote sure. weak. And, and that could be weak in terms of, I don't want to be perceived as weak, just in terms of how they view me or talk about me, but weak quote unquote, it could be practical. I don't want to be seen weak as far as a productivity because, you know, for better or for worse in many systems, academic and private, the more productive you are, You're the more needed. sort yeah. of yeah. cachet, you have yeah. more, well, you have more, more cachet at the table, Absolutely. right? Like, People and people listen to you more if you're a little more productive for better or for worse, right? There's a there's anytime you have a number that's bigger next to your name, whether it's publications or academically or in this case in terms of real world practical, if you're or more productive, better, people are more likely to listen to you. Better physician for having that. Agreed. Right, right. Even if that's mm -hmm. not true, but but at least it gives you a bigger seat sure. at the table. Um, and so a lot of women are like either they're about to start or they are going to start a job and it could be a man too who doesn't want to take parental leave or is afraid of taking parental leave. They're afraid of what you talked about, the worst case scenario where that's sort of used as an excuse that people say, hey, um, we are going to, um, you know, we're going to use this. We may not use it specifically because it's illegal to make that the reason that you are terminated. But, but that is essentially your fear is like, okay, because I'm not as productive as they expect me to be, because I'm not fulfilling, or they're afraid that my productivity may dip now, that I'm not allowed to have a family, or worse, I, I can't feel comfortable talking about these issues with people in my group, um, that I can't talk to senior partners about this. So what I find, so I think a 
a lot of this has to be doing obviously is divided for the most part up until now, up until relatively recently, it's been divided between men and women. Women get pregnant, women take leave. And, and obviously more recent men have taken leave, but it's very recent. So for women, they're already finally, you know, even offered a seat at the table. And the last thing they want to do is lose it. So I think we take it upon ourselves to bend over backward, to do everything we can to, you know, to apologize, to allay the fears that we won't work hard or whatnot, because we were finally given a seat at the table. Um, in reality, obviously, I think that perception has to change. It has to be not that you were given a seat, you earned your seat. I, you know, I earned my seat at the table. Right. I was there for a reason. Um, I also think women tend to do everything at the detriment to themselves. I mean, you said this about about doctors, but I think women are even worse, you know, uh, female physicians are worse than male physicians in taking everything upon themselves and putting themselves last. And so, like I said, they put everything last, they try to do everything they can in order to balance everything. And there literally probably comes to a point where there's zero time for themselves. I think following pregnancy is a bare issue. How many times, you know, one of my good friends said this, she said this, um, women are always seen as a mother, whether you're a mother to be, or you're currently a mother, you're always seen as a mother, you know, whether or not you want to have kids or not. And that has implications and the fear that you're not going to be as productive once you have kids and you're not going to commit yourself to your job full time. Well, you know, fathers do, fathers are, you know, able to do that. And as we know, from all kinds of studies, women take on more housework, but it would seem to me that, you know, if we could have more balanced housework, more balanced childcare, this fear would be non-existent once women, be, you know, became mothers. So I think there's a, a greater picture here that the overall perception of women needs to change. And, you know, I think men have stepped up considerably, but not enough. Yeah. And, and that brings me to like, I'm going to go back to the idea of, again, advice you would give somebody in a sec, but like one of the things I brought up was this question of expectation, right? So like the program directors, a lot of them said, you know, they were nervous or they were worried about the other residents, right? If someone took maternity leave, they were felt like it's unfair to other people. And, and that just strikes a nerve with me because yes, I, maybe you can say it's unfair. I have to do more work, but like, but like there has to be, it's not your, like someone's taking a vacation that's excess or taking a break willingly, right? Um, you know, if you had a colleague who had an illness and you had to cover them, I guess you could say it was unfair, but that's not being a good citizen or team player, member of the team. And, and this is an illness, but this is someone growing their family. And if, again, if you care about your colleagues as people, that's part of who they are is they're going to have their families and they're going to hopefully have grow their families the way they want them to. So like this sort of permeates throughout though. This is not just the residency level. And I think it's so interesting in retina, it's been talked about in other fields of medicine that were historically more male dominated. I mean, medicine's always been a male dominated field, but the surgical subspecialties and retina quote unquote, being one of the heavier surgical subspecialties in ophthalmology, historically, many, many men, um, these uh, both academically and private practice. And that's shifted, you know, we have 25% now of fellowship applicants for women. But that still means the leadership because leadership takes time to change. And a lot of groups, and a lot of institutions are men and maybe men who haven't had to live through this themselves, right? There are men who were in a household that they were the only breadwinner or their wife didn't work or they view it. I didn't even take parental leave. There was no such thing as parental leave as a man. I just came back to work. And so water. My daughter was born on Monday and I came back on Tuesday. Well, you know, Dr. Zelia Correa came on a while back. We talked about some issues related to women in medicine, and she talked about her experiences when she had her child. And she said, you know, she was back to work in two days, and she was still treated by many of the men in her group as kind of being lazy for taking two days off. And I thought that was, I mean, I, remember, I don't remember who was the guest who was with us, but someone else was like horrified <laughs> in the moment. It was like, it's oh atrocious, God. right? It's <laughs> atrocious. Right. But, but my question is, so how do we bridge that cultural gap, right? There's a generational and cultural gap there. Obviously, you may have younger associates who are men or women who may help, who are already part of a practice when you're hiring somebody or you have someone join. But some groups don't have that. Some groups, you may be the first woman or you may be the second woman, but you, all the women are the younger associates. So how do you like change leadership perceptions of what is expected, right? Like, and I'm asking this now as someone who's a leader, you're going to be president of BBS. You've been at BBS a long time. BBS has done a lot of things. Other organizations have done things to educate physicians about many things. This is kind of an unmet need, maybe, where we haven't spent enough time as a community in Retina talking about yeah. this. Um, 
I, I don't want to say people are ignorant. Obviously, everyone knows that people have children, but they sometimes behave as if people yeah. don't have children. Um, so it's interesting. I think there's two parts to this. You know, so it's got to be the greater view of this, like the ten thousand foot view. And and I think that you know this incoming generation, to be honest, is much better. You know, they you know men are taking parental leave, and when they take parental leave, they likely have an expectation that their female partners or their female associates will also want to take parental leave to a greater degree than what's typically been given and say, hey, this is what we do for all of us. Um, and so I think as they move up the ranks of uh, power, if you will, to come to the partner level or chairman level, depending on if you're, you know, private practice or academic, I do think that those um, perceptions will change what they do for the people below them. At least I hope to. I hope so. I hope that they remember what they wanted as an associate level and and as they climb the ranks. But I think that there's practical things, unfortunately, that we need to implement, you know, things that I, I didn't know to look for. Um, one would be looking at your contract, looking at your contract language. If you don't have a pregnancy uh, clause in your contract and they your the practice is reluctant to put one in there, I would run from that practice, you know? And I might never, not, to be honest, I never would have said that before because we all want to join certain types of practices and it would be worth it. Like I'll work hard. And that was very honestly my mentality. I'll work really hard. And I, I mean, I know myself, I'm, I'm a hard worker. Um, I didn't ask for language to protect myself. And it may still not protect you, but if someone's reluctant to give you that language, then I would, I would head the other door and go look at some other practice. That's a little bit incomplete though, because most practices, as you and I were discussing before this, most practices start associates off with, you know, some degree of at-will employment, which means they don't really need to give a reason to let um, an associate go. And therefore pregnancy clauses may or may not protect you. I'm not, you know, I don't have enough of the legalese to know, you know, uh, to the, to a finer detail, but this would be something that you need to be careful of because when women come out, you're 32, 35, what have you. And it's those first three years, what most of us think about having kids. And those are the times that you're typically going to be an associate of a practice and have a have a contract that is different than the one you'll eventually have as a partner. So I definitely would strongly recommend getting a lawyer involved I, to review your contract. I would definitely strongly recommend uh, getting a lawyer involved and asking specifically about maternity clause and paternity clause for that matter um, and, and being wary of practices that are that are not supportive of it. So let me flip the question around. So now you, you've grown your own practice to the point where you've hired an associate and you have um, Vlad is yeah. awesome. And, and so when you're at the point where you have to start thinking about from the employer side, right? I'm hiring associates. So if you had to give advice to people who are in these practices, let's say you have someone who has the best intentions, right? They're like, I really want to do a good job of recruiting a female position or even a male position who may have expectations appropriately to take some parental leave. We've never had that in our practice, Right. right? How do I kind of a structure this, right? What's an appropriate sort of structure for that? How do I go about doing that? Because we have zero, I have zero familiarity with this. I, mean, I never took parental leave. I want people to have it. I didn't do it. And then my second question is, what about like the hidden costs, right? Because like, let's say you give people time, but you have a bonus structure as an associate, or even your partner level, there is a productivity model, right? Obviously, people who cover should get paid maybe for the work they're doing, but now you don't want to penalize people for taking time to the point that they're for forcing themselves back because they don't want to lose excessive money because you don't have that base protection. Like, what do you think is kind of an appropriate protection? For yeah, people? so super hard to, to answer because it depends greatly on the size of a practice, right? So look at my practice. There's two of us. If one of us, when one of us takes off, it's, it's a really big hit on terms of what I will now be covering versus if you're a six person group versus you're a, a 15 person group. But I think the more important um, thing to remember is that, you know, being in a practice is a marathon. It is not two years. It is not that somebody is taking off two or three months in two years. They are taking off two and three months in 15 to 20 years. You know, and even if they do it twice, even if they do it three times, you're talking about a 15, 20 year practice. And from my perspective, I see that as a commitment to this associate that I'm bringing in. I want them, you know, to be a partner. I want them to feel like they belong and that I'm supportive. 
Um, so when I did write my contract, as you know, as my for my first employee, I wrote the contract that I think I would have liked to have had, where I gave a certain number of weeks off. So it was spelled out what was given for maternity leave. And I also put an FMLA clause. So if there wanted to be some time, extended more time, uh, it could be taken without pay. So because I'm a small practice, I needed to be able to balance that, what I could pay for somebody who was working, what I couldn't pay for somebody, what I could pay for somebody who was working. Um, and then, you know, you and I chatted a little bit about productivity and what happens after you come back to your partners want to give you the patients back. And, you know, unfortunately, it comes down to the trust of your partners. I don't know how you structure all that. I, I really don't. Um, it makes for some prickly relationships when you come back. And I think mm -hmm. that's, you know, really for the most part detrimental to women because they might work three years, build up a practice, go on maternity leave for two or th three months. You know, you're talking after a period of 12, 24, you know, 48 or so months and they take off two or three months and they come back and find that their partners, as you said, have poached all their patients and don't really want to give them back. And then you start over and there's, Honestly, I don't know that there's a lot you can do about that situation. Not only have you lost the patience and everything you put into it, you've lost your ability to hit your productivity clause. Um, and it is what it is. I think most women, even in that situation, are just grateful to be able to continue to work, which frustrates me. It's wrong. You know, it's wrong that we think that way. And so what do we do? Most of us work harder. We do it again. We work harder. We build it up again. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, I think we just hear the tip of the iceberg and you probably heard more stories than I have. I've heard stories from people similar where it's kind of this nebulous thing, right? So how do you like write out because each patient sort of an individual case and there's always yeah. a reason, oh, this patient yeah. want to come to this yeah. office, oh, this patient can come in this day. And it's like, how much of it is, you don't want to be overly sensitive. You know, maybe some of it's true and people have their best intentions, but you know, it's so interesting. Like we've had a colleague in our department, um, unrelated to pregnancy, who's out for medical reasons for about four months. And um, I'll give, you know, Dr. Flynn, who's our head of department, a lot of credit where he was essentially very, very much like I'm see telling the patient, I'm going to see you now, but Dr. So-and-so is going to come back sure. and see you. That. And like making that very clear from the beginning and being very good about having the patient like always return to that doctor. I'm in a position where I was gone from my practice for it and came back. And, and I was very lucky. Again, I had partners who did that for me where they were like, oh, I'm going to make sure I get you back. Um and that, that's like you said, that's hard to tease out if you're an applicant interviewing for a job, because that's yeah. that's when you have a good, quote unquote good people versus yeah. bad people to work with. It's really hard to yeah. know that if you work there. Um, well, anyway, you know, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I mean, I would just say any final anything, final thoughts, like anything else you think that we missed or you'd want to say before we break. I mean, I would just say my, my last thing would just be I, I just think we need to talk about this more. Uh, I'm glad we're having this episode, but I think that this is something that there maybe should be more guidance. And again, I really hope the people who listen to this aren't, I mean, I, I feel like the people who are women know about a lot sure. of these things. It's, I just really hope it's the people on the other side who may not be aware of these issues. It's like, they don't mean to cause harm, but if you don't know what you don't know, then you don't know what's going on. Um, but so no, I really appreciate you giving me a forum to talk about this because I've wanted to for a long time, but very honestly, it was quite painful. So I wanted to be able to talk about it because I want other people to learn from my experiences and to be wary um, when you join practices. I think the culture of a practice is really hard to figure out. And when you're getting out of fellowship, you're motivated to join a productive, busy, you know, uh, practice and we don't think about the culture of the practice. Um, so I would ask a lot of questions as you're going in this. I would look for, as I called red flags, I would look for maternity, paternity clauses. I would look for people who have, who have left patent in the past and ask a lot of questions. And, and that goes for, you know, you're doing your due diligence regardless. Um, I am so happy that there are many more women in coming out of fellowship because slowly but surely they're going to climb the ranks and become hopefully partners in these practices. Um, but, you know, like I said, my story about my twins, it may take 18 years, you know, until we have a different conversation about this. Got it. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, again, I really appreciate taking the time and talking about these tough issues. I think this will kind of pair well with the discussion we just had with, um, with Lisa and Matt and Priya and, uh, Again, hopefully we can have more discussions about this. Maybe another idea for our Absolutely. future BBS presentation. it's a great topic. Thank you for having me, Jay. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. 
Many thanks to Drs. Cunningham, Vicaria, and Almost a Coup for joining me, as well as Dr. Lawani. Appreciate all the support listeners over time we have had for this podcast. We have 335 episodes. We're nearing 350 very shortly. It's hard to believe, but all those episodes are available for consumption. They're archived on our website, redsinapodcast.com. You can go and log in, find them searchable by category. Remember that we are also on Facebook and on Twitter at Retina Podcast. You can contact us by emailing us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com, clicking on the contact us link on our website, or by reaching out via social media. We're also on your favorite podcast app where you can subscribe. You can also subscribe via email by entering your email on the website. Many thanks to our production team, Drs. Louis Kai, Angela Chang, and Mike Minacasa for all the work they do behind the scenes. Listeners, Thank you for listening. Thank you for doing what you do on a daily basis, taking care of patients. Thank you for publishing articles. And thank you for inspiring the conversations we have each week here on the program. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the cutter's mouth. <laughs> <laughs>